Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, this is Gay, and I'll be reading today's edition of the Cape Cod Times for Wednesday, August 16th, 2023. We'll start with the weather. Today, you can expect it to be mostly cloudy and humid with a few showers, high temperature 75 degrees. Tonight, it will be humid with low clouds, low temperature 65. Thursday, it'll be humid with periods of rain, high temperature 75, low temperature 69. And on Friday, it'll be windy with showers and a heavier thunderstorm, high temperature 83, low 61. On Saturday, you can expect it to be mostly sunny and nice, breezy in the afternoon, high 79, low 59. And on Sunday, it'll be mostly sunny, high 81, low 66. The sun rose this morning at 5.50 a.m. and it will set tonight at 7.40 p.m. That's 13 hours and 50 minutes of daylight. And the lottery numbers for the numbers game for yesterday, Tuesday, August 15th. The midday drawing numbers are 5437. That's 5437 for the midday drawing for Tuesday, August 15th. For the evening drawing, that's 9603. 9603. That's the evening drawing for the numbers game for Tuesday, August 15th. In our first story this morning, Healy announces plan for $1.44 billion in federal funding for bridges. It's critical for the economy by Walker Armstrong, Cape Cod Times. Governor Maura Healy's office announced Monday a competitive application plan for securing a $1.44 billion in federal discretionary grant money for replacing the aging Bourne and Sagamore bridges, an economic lifeline for the Cape, and according to officials, an increasingly concerning public safety risk. The Healy administration plans to apply for $450 million from the Nationally Significant Multimodal Freight and Highway Projects Program and $222 million from National Infrastructure Project Assistance, the so-called Mega Grant Program. These two grants will be closely followed by the Bridge Investment Program later this fall, which has the largest share at over $1.07 billion. Applications are due August 24. In an emailed statement, Healy said the project would take place in phases, the first of which would focus on the Sagamore Bridge. Her administration said this was due to higher traffic volumes and they would eventually complete the replacement of the Bourne Bridge as well. This first phase will enable us to get shovels in the ground quickly on the Sagamore Bridge, lay the groundwork for rebuilding the Bourne Bridge, and move forward on the permitting and design of both bridges, Healy said. We believe that this is a competitive application that will put us on the best footing to move forward on this project that is critical for the economy of the Cape and our entire state. Earlier this year, the project hit a wall when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers learned it would not receive grants of more than $1 billion worth of discretionary funding under the 2022 Infrastructure for Rebuilding America Mega Grant Program and the Bridge Investment Program. This time, the administration's application strategy would also be backed by a $350 million in matching state money, a key item in this process that U.S. Representative Bill Keating, Democrat from the 9th District, said was missing during the first bid to secure those federal grants. After the last grant applications failed, we were dissecting this whole thing to see what happened, and it was clear that, frankly, it was totally non-competitive, Keating said. Because there were no matching funds, a major criterion for the grants, it was unsuccessful. 
Earlier this month, Keating authored language that doubled Secretary of Defense discretionary funding for the replacement of the canal bridges from $100 million to $200 million. For years, we've been working to tailor the funding for these big projects with these bridges in mind, Keating said. We worked to make sure there was money for these big types of infrastructure projects like the two bridges, and going forward, we're going to have a highly competitive grant. The state's $350 million matches the U.S. Senate's inclusion of $350 million in an appropriation bill announced earlier this month. The Healy-Driscoll administration recently included $262 million toward replacing the bridges in the state's fiscal year 2024 through 2028 capital investment plan, altogether aiming to include $700 million in state funds for the project. If the grant application strategy is successful, the Healy administration said it would represent the largest discretionary federal grant ever given to Massachusetts, on top of being one of the largest in U.S. history. The project is now estimated to cost $4.541 billion, the Healy administration said, and construction on the Sagamore Bridge will begin in 2028 with the design-build process already underway. Quentin Palfrey, Director of Federal Funds and Infrastructure for the Healy Administration, said the design will include a shared-use path for bicyclists, borne rotary improvements, expanded access for bus routes, and charging stations for electric vehicles. With all our projects, we are working to ensure that we advance the state's priorities for decarbonization, climate resilience, environmental protection, and expanded access to transit, Palfrey said. We're also announcing several multimodal projects to protect the Kate's delicate ecosystem while ensuring that residents and visitors connect to the Maria Oliva, president and CEO of the Cape Cod Canal Region Chamber of Commerce, said the ongoing maintenance of the bridges can cripple the economy of the towns on both sides of the bridges due to the heavy traffic. The ongoing maintenance really, in my opinion, should qualify for the competitiveness of the grants, Oliva said. You're talking about serious traffic congestion, two- or three-hour waits. It's a public safety issue as well. That issue of having ongoing maintenance almost every year is a real detriment to us as a whole. Both bridges, now 88 years old, serve as the only way on and off the Cape for motorists, bicyclists, and pedestrians. Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive Paul Nuzitsky said their age and traffic volumes create a public safety concern. It's important for the economy, but more importantly, it's a safety issue, said Nizuski, adding the bridge's importance for the workforce that depends on them for commuting to and from their jobs. The day-to-day operation of our economy is dependent on having fully functional bridges that have enough capacity to deal with it. Otherwise, this is unsustainable, he said. We can't continue to price out the working class from living on the Cape and turn our back on the infrastructure that connects us to the rest of the world. Our next story is from Falmouth. Falmouth police officer off the forest after assault claims by Graham Curinghouse from Cape Cod Times. Wareham, a, Fa- a Falmouth Police Department patrol officer left his job after seven months following a criminal and internal police investigation into an allegation that he assaulted a friend at a party in Wareham where underage partygoers were drinking, according to documents obtained by the Times and a review of public records. Dalton Woodside, who was 22 at the time of the alleged incident, is from Bourne, where his father, Dennis Woodside, led the Bourne Police Department for more than 10 years before retiring in 2021. The younger Woodside was sworn in as a patrol officer in Falmouth in December. Wareham Police opened an investigation on May 28th, the night of the alleged fight, and determined that two charges of assault should be pursued, according to the police warrant report. 
The charges are to be heard at a clerk magistrate hearing in September, a clerk at Wareham District Court told the Times on August 4th at the courthouse. Falmouth police also conducted an internal investigation and determined that no assault charges could be supported, according to the internal investigation report obtained by the Times. The name of the person who is alleged to have been assaulted was redacted in the internal investigation report and not included in the Wareham police warrant. Both the person alleged to have been assaulted and Dalton Woodside told police that they had been friends for several years, according to the internal investigation report. Woodside told the Times last week that he no longer works for the Falmouth Police Department. I retired, he said over the phone. Woodside declined to say more and did not respond to further attempts to contact him by phone. Falmouth police officials declined to say whether he had been terminated or had voluntarily resigned. Falmouth Human Resources Director Susan Lumping did not respond to a request for the date of Woodside's departure from town employment. In 2020, the legislature created the Peace Officers Standards and Training Commission, POST, which certifies police officers every three years, investigates misconduct, and occasionally decertifies offending. As of Monday, Dalton Woodside was certified by the POST Commission. Cindy Campbell, the commission's director of communications and community engagement, said the certification is set to expire in July 2024. After the assault, the alleged victim visited his parents and then reported his allegations to Wareham Police, according to the Falmouth Police Internal Investigation Report. One of the man's parents told Falmouth Police he showed them his injuries before reporting the incident. The Wareham log confirms that at 8.09 p.m. on May 28th, a person went to the Wareham Police Department to report an assault and battery at Long Neck Road. That day, a warrant report was issued by Wareham Police. The report, a copy of which was obtained by the Times, stated that Woodside faced charges of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, a felony, as well as a misdemeanor charge of assault and battery in a field or the woods at 98 Long Neck Road in Wareham. There was suspected use of alcohol and use of personal weapons of hands and feet, according to the warrant report. A Wareham District Court official told a Times reporter in person on August 4th that Woodside's name is in the court system, that he had not been arrested, and that a case involving him was pending before a clerk magistrate in September. Clerk magistrate hearings are not open to the public, the clerk said. The Falmouth Police internal investigation began interviews on June 9th, and the final report was issued on July 17th. According to the Falmouth report, a party started on May 27th at the Wareham property and continued into early Sunday, interviewees said. Eight interviews were conducted during the investigation, including with the alleged victim and Woodside, according to the report. Both men said Woodside brought his own liquor to the party. At around 3 a.m. on May 28th, in front of others, the friend of Woodside's, who is alleging he was assaulted, was collecting bottles of liquor from a cooler for a beach outing planned for later, according to the Falmouth Internal Investigation Report. Woodside yelled out to the friend, That's my... Woodside then went over to the friend's vehicle, which was out of sight of the rest of the group, and searched it vigorously, the friend told Falmouth police. Woodside then pushed the friend grabbed him by the shirt and chain around his neck, and ripped the chain off his neck, according to the report. Woodside then threw the friend to the ground, picked him up, and threw him on the ground again, the alleged victim told police, according to the report. Once the friend was on the ground, while wearing shoes, Woodside started to kick him in the face, legs, and back, the man told police. More men joined Woodside and kicked the alleged victim on and off for about 15 minutes, according to the report. One of the men suggested that they shoot the alleged victim and bury him in the woods, the man told police. 
Some witnesses told Falmouth police investigators they did not observe the altercation, but were told that a third man had been the one to attack the alleged victim and that Woodside acted as a mediator, according to the report. One witness said that they had not heard about any kicks or injuries, but two others said they saw the friend with his face covered in blood and walking with a limp, according to the report. Woodside was placed on administrative leave at some point during the Falmouth investigation, according to the Falmouth Police Internal Investigation Report. In a July 10th interview that Woodside and a union representative had with the Falmouth Police, Lieutenant Douglas DaCosta, as an investigator, Woodside denied ever pushing or kicking the man, according to the report. Woodside told DaCosta that he broke up a small fight between the alleged victim and another party attendee, and that he believed the alleged victim bit his own lip, according to the report. Woodside told investigators that nobody had struck or kicked the friend, nor was the friend ever pushed to the ground by anyone, according to the report. Woodside and all other witnesses acknowledged that everyone there was drunk at the time, including underage attendees, who Woodside knew should not be drinking, the report Woodside told Falmouth police investigators that as July 10th, he had not cooperated with the Wareham police investigation, believing it to have been put on hold while the internal investigation was taking place. Two witnesses, the ones that reported the friend's face being covered in blood, told Falmouth police investigators that they were very apprehensive about coming forward for fear of retribution by Woodside, according to the internal investigation report. Their relationships with Woodside were not specified in the report. Following the Falmouth investigation, DaCosta found that a charge of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, a shod foot, was not substantiated according to the report. DaCosta did find Woodside had violated Falmouth police rules and regulations by not attempting to stop the underage partygoers from drinking. He also found Woodside violated conduct rules in an unrelated incident by disseminating confidential information about a detainee, according to the report. In DaCosta's findings that the alleged allegation was not sustained, he wrote that the alleged victim's account of the incident was not supported by any other witnesses and that the friend may have been too drunk or in a location too dark to correctly identify the attacker. DaCosta could not immediately be reached for comment on his investigation. The last interview conducted in the Falmouth Police investigation was with Woodside on July 10th. By early August, Woodside was not listed on the roster for the Falmouth Police Department. And also in Falmouth, pedestrian couple struck by motorcyclists in Falmouth by Graham Kieringhouse, Cape Cod Times. A local couple was struck crossing Monday evening on Main Street in Falmouth by a motorcyclist who fled the scene, Falmouth police said Tuesday in a statement. The motorcyclist left the motorcycle on the side of the road, police said, but the person's identity was not the couple, whom Falmouth Police Lieutenant Michael Simino did not name in the statement, are a husband and wife in their 60s from Falmouth. They were crossing Main Street in front of the SD of Falmouth around 8.48 p.m. Monday, Simino wrote, when the man on the motorcycle struck them. They were found injured in the road, and Falmouth emergency rescuers helped them and took them to the hospital. Their conditions were not known on Tuesday, according to the release. The motorcyclist initially appeared as if he was planning to wait for emergency services to arrive, moving his motorcycle to the side of the road, the release said. But before police got there, the man ran away, going behind the nearby town hall and into the woods around Cider's Pond. A police search, including a dog, was unsuccessful, according to the release. Simino could not immediately be reached for Tuesday for further comment. According to the release, the Cape Cod Regional Law Enforcement Council and the Barnstable County Sheriff's Office helped Falmouth Police in the investigation. Next, Cape Cod Times Needy Fund Helps Couple Pay Medical Bills by Rashik Tabasa Mujib from the Cape Cod Times. 
Living on a fixed income, a 79-year-old husband is caring for his wife, who is undergoing treatment for a cancer that significantly compromises her immune system, making her more susceptible to infections. When she contracted a tooth infection and needed significant dental treatment, insurance covered portions of the cost, but not enough. Her husband had no other option than to ask for help. With the help of the Needy Fund, he was able to pay the medical bills. He was also connected with other agencies to ensure the couple had the resources to get them through this difficult time. The nonprofit Cape Cod Times Needy Fund has provided emergency financial assistance to thousands of Cape Codders and Islanders since 1936. That assistance is made possible because of the continued generosity of neighbors helping neighbors. The Needy Fund provides short-term emergency assistance to Cape and Islands residents so they can continue to go to work and or stay in their homes. People in need submit their requests for help to the Needy Fund, which in turn pays for goods or services, a medical bill for example, through a voucher system. No cash is given to Needy Fund recipients. On July 2nd, the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund kicked off its summer fundraising appeal with the goal of raising $225,000 between now and August 20th. Donations, which are tax-deductible, may be made online at needyfund.org. Checks payable to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund should be mailed to Cape Cod Times Needy Fund, P.O. Box 36, Hyannis, Mass., 02601. Those needing assistance may contact the Needy Fund at 508 508- Seven seven eight five six six one, or eight hundred four two two one four four six. Questions can be emailed to info at needyfund.org. The Needy Fund is also on Facebook and Twitter. In our next story, the search for a missing fisherman south of Nantucket suspended on Sunday by Zane Razak for the Cape Cod Times. A search for a fisherman who went missing from a vessel south of Nantucket was suspended on Sunday, according to U.S. Coast Guard Petty Officer Diolando Caballero. Caballero did not provide additional information. The person's identity has not yet been released. Around 8 p.m. Saturday, the crew of the Gaston's Legacy said one of its crewmen was missing. Caballero provided, previously told the Times in an email. Caballero said the crew did not see them go overboard. Within an hour, the Coast Guard sent an MH-60J Hawk helicopter air crew from Air Station Cape Cod and a boat crew from Coast Guard Station Brant Point to search. Both crews searched overnight, and a new crew member took over early Sunday morning, said Caballero. Other assistance was also on hand, such as the fishing fleet vessels Captain John and Lady Samira and U.S. Coast Guard cutters Harriet Lane and Maurice Jester. And from Brewster, Brewster debuts a new police department website through Civic Plus by Heather McCarran from the Cape Cod Times. Anyone looking to file a motor vehicle accident report or seeking other police department services in Brewster can now do so more readily and expect a more prompt response in most cases without having to walk through the doors at police headquarters. It's all thanks to a newly revamped Brewster Police Department website, which police and town officials are touting as a more user-friendly resource, offering not only police news and information, but also online access to various forms and applications, such as for the department's reassurance program that checks in on seniors living alone, licenses to carry, report requests, and for filing accidents In addition to our presence on social media, it is our hope that the website will serve as a place for members of the community to find information relevant to the police operations in Brewster, said Police Chief Heath Eldridge, who is excited about the new site. Town Manager Peter Lombardi said the relaunched police site is part of an ongoing effort this year to make all of the town's resources more easily accessible to residents and visitors. 
the launch of the new police website, along with the town website earlier this year, is crucial to this effort. He's, the new police site at www.brewster-mass.gov police uses Civic Plus, a platform used by many communities around the nation, including most Cape Cod towns. The town relaunched its main website on the platform in March. By the end of this month, the Brewster Fire Department is also expected to debut a new website on the same platform. Presently, the Fire Department link is on the town's website, takes visitors to the department's Facebook page. In an announcement about the new police website, the town's administration pointed out the ability to fill out online forms directly on the site, such as the motor vehicle accident form and business listing form, as notable improvements. The new platform allows residents to register with the community opt-in portal to receive emergency notifications and important updates. Eldridge said the police site has been under development for several months and was a cooperative effort between members of his department, Lombardi's office, and Civic Plus. The new site is similar to the old one in its function, but it is more in line with the platform being used by other departments in town, he said. The police department has had a website since 2005, with many re reboots and facelifts since then, according to the chief. Recent arrest logs now accessible from the main page remain a highlight of the website, According to Eldridge, the logs have historically been the most visited part of our page. We do not get a lot of walk-in traffic at the police station requesting to view the logs. While the arrest logs can be accessed online, more detailed police reports must be requested via form available online, which can be emailed when completed or by visiting the police station. Specific information about the locations of residents listed on the sex offenders registry is one data set that remains accessible only in person. Eldridge noted the department previously had the ability for people to send in information through the website, but we have a system in place now to allow a quicker response to those inquiries. The website also includes an optional form for business owners to fill out so police have the most up-to-date information regarding their businesses, including emergency contact information. We still encourage people to call the police station to report crimes in order to receive the quickest response, and certainly emergencies should be called in using 911, the chief said. Besides Facebook, the department also maintains accounts on Instagram and X, formerly Twitter. We have had Facebook since 2015. Our social media platform is a useful tool for getting information out quickly to the community and to provide insight into departmental operations that wouldn't typically be considered newsworthy, the chief said. So far, he said, there has been no feedback about the new website, but he and the rest of the team are certainly willing to hear how we can adjust our new site to continue to meet the needs of our community. And get ready for the 2023 Thalmouth Road Race, What to Know Before You Go, by Courtney Jacobs of the Cape Cod Times. The annual A6 Falmouth Road Race is back for its 51st running on Sunday. One of the most anticipated races this weekend will be in the women's elite field, while Helen Obiri and Emily Sisson will make their Falmouth Road Race debuts. Obiri won the Boston Marathon in April, the Boston Athletic Association 10K, was runner-up in the MasterCard New York Mini 10K, and won the Beach to Boston 10K in Maine. Sisson has the American record for the Bank of America Chicago Marathon, and she has also set the American record in the Half Marathon, since broken by Kiera D'Amato, and won the U.S. Track and Field 15-kilometer title for the third consecutive year. If you are there in person or watching from the comfort of your home, here is everything you need to know prior to the festivities this weekend. The wheelchair division will kick off things at 8.40 a.m., followed by the elite women's start at 8.50 a.m. 
the elite men will begin at 9 a.m., and seated runners and wheelchair duos at 9.03 a.m. The first pulse start for the general field of runners will begin at 9.05 a.m. With 20,000 people on site, you can imagine how traffic and parking may Please avoid parking on private properties or next to an open business because your chances of getting towed will increase. Something new this year is that there will be a drop-off only option at Falmouth High School, 874 Gifford Street, from 6 a.m. to 7.15 a.m. You must RSVP to access this option. There are other parking options like the Mullen Hall and Morse Pond Schools, the Town Hall, and the public lot near the library, and the Homeport Office Complex on Gifford Street. There will be no parking on Worcester Court, according to the Town of Falmouth. Access to the start area in Woods Hole will be strictly controlled, and parking and boat drop-ups will not be available. There is a free bus option from Lawrence School at 113 Lakeview Avenue, beginning at 6 a.m. You must be on site by 7.20 a.m. Please note, if you arrive to the school after 7.20 a.m., you may not be guaranteed a ride to the start. Unregistered runners and at-home edition participants will not be allowed on the bus. Although the various races are the main attractions, there are plenty other things to do for all ages leading up to the day of the races. The Health and Fitness Expo is a three-day event, August 17th to 19th, that displays the latest in running, fitness, and unique Cape Cod items. You can purchase official race apparel and the latest athletic shoes at the ASICS booth, have a poster signed by former Olympians and road race legends, attend seminars, and much more. The hours for the expo are below, Thursday, 4 to 7 p.m., Friday, noon to 7, and Saturday, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Another event prior to Sunday is the Falmouth Track Festival on Friday at 7 p.m. at the Falmouth High School James Calpiris Track. This event includes the Tommy Kokri High School Mile, the Elite Wheelchair Mile, and the Elite Mile. The Coterie High School Mile is for high school students who are residents of Massachusetts and currently attend or are a 2023 graduate of a Massachusetts high school. The Falmouth Elite Mile is an invitational mile for elite runners. For the male runners, they must have run a sub-4-minute mile, and female runners must have run a 4-minute, 39-second-minute mile to be considered for an invitation. On the following morning, Saturday, the 21st annual SBLI Family Run Fun Run will free event will take place at 9 a.m. This includes races for kids ages 2 to 12, refreshments, a DJ to turn the party up, a photo booth to catch all the memories, glitter tattoos, games, giveaways, and more. On long, hot days like this, it is always good to have medical help available on site. There will be medical locations throughout the course. This includes the start line in Woods Hole, three medical stations along the course, a mobile medical team working in between each station, medical staff at the finish line, and in the finish line medical tent. There will be thousands of people in attendance, so look out for medical volunteers in royal blue t-shirts with credentials. Keep an eye out for the weather forecast, which is saying that the high will be 78 degrees. If you want to keep track of your family and friends during the race, download the RT, RT Falmouth Road Race app on your smartphone. All final results will be posted by 2 p.m. on the race website at www.falmouthroadrace.com and the RTRT Falmouth Road Race app. As a reminder, you are listening to the Wednesday, August 16th edition of the Cape Cod Times. It's now time for the obituaries. Our first obituary, Patricia Jean McMillan Barclay of Pocasset. Patricia Jean McMillan Barclay, 89, passed away in Pocasset, Mass. on August 10, 2023. 
Born in Quincy, Mass. on February 26, 1934, she was the beloved spouse of the late Gerald K. Barkley. Services will be private. Donations may be made to McCarthy Care Center, 73 Service Road, East Sandwich, Mass., 02537. William Bill Joseph Rogers, Dennisport. William Bill Joseph Rogers, 93, of Dennisport, passed peacefully on August 12, 2023. Bill was born in Whitesboro, Texas, on December 14, 1929. He was predeceased by his loving, devoted wife of 69 years, Dorothy D. McLeod Rogers, and his eldest son, William Joseph Rogers, Jr. Bill was a highly decorated major and proud member of the United States Air Force, earning a Bronze Star during his more than two decades of service. After retiring from the Air Force, Bill moved on to his second career, owning and operating the Dennisport Automatic Coin Laundry for more than 30 years. Bill is survived by a large family and many friends who will greatly miss him. A grade side service will be held this Friday, August 18th, 2023, at 11 o'clock in Swan Lake Annex Cemetery, Depot Street, Dennisport. Contributions in his memory may be made to Cape Abilities, 895 Mary Dunn Road, Hyannis, Mass., 02601. That's an organization very near and dear to Bill and the Rogers family. And the entire Rogers family would like to thank the staff at Regal Care in Harwich for their dedicated and astonishing care of Bill in his final days. Peter Brufas, Buzzards Bay. Peter Brufas, 89, of Buzzards Bay, passed away peacefully on Saturday, August 12, 2023, at He was the husband of 52 years of Katie Carabazos Brufas and was born in Megalopolis, Greece. He came to the United States in 1969, settling and born in 1970. Mr. Brufoss owned Buzzards Bay Barbershop for 49 years and operated it proudly for 40 years until retiring in 2014 at 79 years old. He was a member of St. George Greek Orthodox Church in North Dartmouth. He is survived by his wife, Katie, and several family members. His funeral service will be held at 10 a.m. this Saturday on August 19, 2023 at St. George Greek Orthodox Church, 186 Cross Street, North Dartmouth. Burial will follow in Pine Grove Cemetery, New Bedford. Visiting hours have been omitted. Donations in his memory may be made to Elder Services of Cape Cod in the Islands, 68 Route 134, South Dennis, Mass., 02660. J. Paul Lanza, Simsbury. Joseph Paul Lanza, 87, of Simsbury, died peacefully on August 12, 2023. Paul was born in Southbridge, Mass. on October 3, 1935, and raised in West Hartford, Connecticut. He graduated from Hall High School in 1954 and started at St. Michael's College, interrupting his education to service in the Navy on destroyer USS John Paul Jones. Paul graduated in 1962 with a degree in American Studies. He married Suzanne Catherine Haran in 1960, and they raised five children. Paul had a varied and interesting career. In 1963, he moved his family to Cape Cod to start a building and real estate development company. Over the years, he built 450 residential and commercial buildings, including the John F. Kennedy Memorial in Hyannis. In 1976, Paul and his family moved to Simsbury, Connecticut, where he became executive director of the Professional Golfers Association of Connecticut and Western Massachusetts. He was also a stockbroker for Merrill Lynch and Kidder Peabody, for several years before returning to construction and real estate development. 
In retirement, he founded Cottage Furniture, which specialized in American shaker and nautically inspired furniture. Paul was proud of the fact that the sea chests he built were often given as commemorative gifts to naval officers and that there were in each of the 50 states and eight foreign countries. Committed to public service, Paul was nominated as a White House and served as an advisor to the U.S. Secretary of Housing on usage of all American housing materials in domestic and foreign markets. Paul served on the Barnstable School Building Committee, the Osterville Free Library Board of Trustees, and the Simsbury Building Design Review and Historic District Committees. He volunteered for the Simsbury Food Bank. He was a lifelong golfer and passed on his love of the game to his children and grandchildren. In addition to his wife of 62 years, Paul leaves many children and relatives who will greatly miss him. Calling hours will be held today, Wednesday, August 16th, from 5 to 7 at the Vincent Funeral Home, 880 Hop Meadow Street in Simsbury. A funeral mass of Christian burial will be celebrated at 11 a.m. tomorrow, Thursday, August 17th, at St. Mary's Church, 942 Hop Meadow Street in Simsbury. Burial will be private. In lieu of flowers, please consider a gift in his memory to the First Tee of Connecticut, 55 Golf Club Road, Cromwell, Connecticut, 06146 www.firstteaconnecticut.org. Please visit Paul's Book of Memories at www.vincentfuneralhome.com for online tribute. Roy B. Maservi, Jr., a long resident of Chatham, Massachusetts, and a snowbird of the Villages, Florida, passed away on July 26, 2023. Roy discovered a penchant for numbers at an early age and developed his skills working for Holy agency on Cedar Street, Chatham, during his high school years to further explore his interest in accounting. In 1959, he established the Missouri Accounting Firm on Cromwell Road and led his successful business until his retirement in 2019. Roy served honorably in the Massachusetts Army National Guard from 1958 to 1964 as an artillery non-commissioned officer. He declined an opportunity to attend officer candidate school so he could develop his full attention to his budding accounting firm. He played golf all over the Cape with his golf buddies and acted as their treasurer for their 12-member Chatham Country Club. Roy belonged to many service and civic organizations, including Explorer Scouts, the United States Junior Chamber, JCs, and Rotary International. He was past president of the Chatham Rotary Club and named an honorary trustee of the Chatham Conservation Foundation. He was a member of First United Methodist Church, Chatham, and a Massachusetts Freemason. Roy is survived by his wife of 30 years, Winnie Lord Maservi, and many family members. For all those who knew Roy, he will be remembered for his brilliant smile, deep devotion to his family, and dedication to his clients. A celebration of life will be held in Chatham at a later date. In lieu of flowers, please consider a donation to the Chatham Conservation Foundation, 540 Main Street, Chatham, Mass., 02633. Barbara Charlton Adams. Barbara Charlton Adams of Meadville, Pennsylvania and Hyannisport, Mass. died on August 2, 2023 after a brief illness. Barbara was born on April 8, 1935 and raised in Boston. She started her primary education at Boston Girls Latin School and completed it at the West Roxbury High School, graduating in 1953. During her high school years, Barbara studied ballet at the Alicia Langford School of Ballet. She attended Brown University, Pembroke College, graduating in 1957 with a degree in English. At Brown, she wrote dance and music reviews for the school paper and formed many lifelong friends. 
Barbara studied library science in New York and Boston and was a librarian at MIT's Dewey Library, specializing in economics, industrial relations, and management, where she met her future husband, Earl Adams Jr., a Ph.D. candidate at MIT, and they were married in Boston on August 4, 1960. Barbara was a certified indexer and trained editor, and throughout her life, she belonged to numerous book clubs and clubs. She was also a devoted patron and financial supporter of the Meadville and Hyannis Public Libraries. She is survived by her husband of 58 years, Earl Jr. In lieu of flowers, please consider a donation to the Meadville Public Library, meadvillelibrary.org slash give, or the Hyannis Public Library, hyannislibrary.org slash make-a-donation. Charles Lewis Crawford, Falmouth. Charles L. Crawford passed away peacefully on August 11th at home in West Falmouth, Mass. He had found comfort and support from his family during his last week under hospice. Charlie, as he was known in childhood, was born on November 7, 1940, in Valley Stream, New York. In Queens Village, Charlie made lifelong friends and flourished as a Jesuit student-athlete at Xavier High School, class of 1958. His deep love of learning meshed with his passion for team sports at Xavier, where he played varsity football, basketball, and baseball. He continued his education, earning a bachelor's degree from Manhattan College in 1962, a master's degree from the University of Maryland in 1964, and a doctorate in education from New York University in 1970. In the summer of 1961, he met the love of his life, Eileen Clancy, at a Kingston Trio concert in Forest Hills. They married in 1962 and they moved to West Falmouth in 2009 to enjoy the beauty of Cape. During his retirement, Charlie, also known as Chaz, channeled his passion for sport and competition into senior softball. Through thousands of games in EMAS, Cape Cod, and Florida leagues, he met new friends, shared his knowledge of the game, and equally enjoyed national championship competition and friendly games of all types. He also found joy in umpiring MIAA girls high school softball and senior softball he is survived by his wife, Eileen, and many family members who will greatly miss him. A memorial mass will be held at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Church, 481 Quaker Road, North Falmouth, on Monday, August 21st. In lieu of flowers, the family asked that any charitable gifts be made to Xavier High School in honor of the support and community that Chaz found there as a young man. Donations in his name will be dedicated to support student mental health activities. Please see www. Dot xavierhs.org slash giving. Catherine I. Pina. In loving memory of Catherine I. Pina, beloved wife, mother, and grandmother, and pillar of community, passed away on August 10th, 2023, at the age of 77. She was born on March 25th, 1940. Catherine was the wife of David C. Pina of Katua, Massachusetts, sharing 52 wonderful years of marriage to Catherine's educational journey led her to graduate from Bishop Armstrong Catholic School in Sacramento, California in 1965. Her devotion to family and community was evident in her dedication to the family business, Pina Bus Lines, and Pina Sanitation for over 50 years. She also 35 years contributing to the Barnstable Park and Recreation Department and led her support to the Barnstable Quarterback Club for more than a decade. Her commitment to her faith was palpable, evident through her roles as a CCD teacher and a Eucharist minister at Our Lady of Assumption. She also served on the board at the Gosnell Treatment Center for 17 years. Additionally, she offered her time and guidance as a volunteer at Barnstable County Jail, mentoring female inmates to help them find a path to a better future. Catherine's impact on the lives she touched was immeasurable, earning her the Marion Award for her exceptional service. A visitation to celebrate 
Catherine's Life will be held this Friday, August 18th, 2023, at Chapman Funeral Home, 3778 Falmouth Road, Marston's Mills, from 4 to 7. In lieu of flowers, the family kindly requests that donations be made to St. Vincent's de Paul Society, 76 Wiano Avenue, Osterville, Mass., 02655, or St. Anthony's Charity Club, 308 Osterville, West Barnstable Road, Osterville, Mass., 02655. In honor of Catherine's memory, a funeral mass will be at Our Lady of the Assumption Church, 76 Wiano Avenue, Osterville, 02655, with burial at Mosswood Cemetery, 280 Putnam Avenue. And that concludes the obituaries for the Cape Cod Times today, Wednesday, August 16th, 2023. Province Town Rescuers Help Entangle Humpback Whale Off Cape Ann by Heather McCarran, Cape Cod Times. A humpback whale mother is back to tending to her eight-month-old calf after she was freed Saturday from an entanglement that put the pair's well-being at risk. Summering in New England waters, the whale known as Pinball and her offspring were spotted by recreational boaters off Cape Ann early Saturday morning. Members of the Marine Animal Entanglement Response Team at the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown responded after they were alerted via their hop. Pinball was struggling with dozens of feet of buoy line from traditional fishing gear through her mouth and showing clear signs of distress as she and her calf slowly moved south from where they were first sighted, according to the organization. Along with the Hurricane 2 whale watch vessel out of Cape Can and the U.S. Coast Guard out of Gloucester and a commercial fishing crew, the Mariners kept watch on the whale, mother, and calf while the rescue team was en route and worked to devise the best approach to helping pinball. She was in a bit of a panic, and so she would stop and have some trouble, said Scott Landry, director of the Entanglement Response Program, noting she only traveled a couple of miles from where she was first sighted. The rescue team spent about five hours on the rescue using large floats and the drag from their small inflatable boat in an effort to keep pinball at the surface while they were. Since January 2016, there have been an elevated number of humpback whale deaths along the Atlantic coast from Maine through Florida. Some have been attributed to vessel strikes, but more research is needed according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. During the rescue, Pinball's calf wandered away several times but returned to nurse. By a little past noon on Saturday, the team successfully removed all of the entangling gear. In all, we removed 150 feet worth of rope, Landry said. When they were done, he said, Pinball was in a very big hurry to get back with her kid. The calf is at an age at which young humpbacks start showing some independence and so was off somewhere doing something. Once Pinball realized she was free, she made a beeline for her calf, Landry said. The team remained with Pinball until the two were reunited. Humpback calves remain with their mothers for about a year before they are fully independent and will often continue nursing for most of that time, though they can eat like adults starting at around six months of age. Duke Robbins, senior scientist and director of the Humpback Whale Studies Program at the Center for Coastal Studies, said Pinball is more than 30 years old and has had at least 10 calves. The Center for Coastal Studies, she said, was one of the first to document her as a calf here off Massachusetts, and we maintain records of her life history through our Gulf of Maine Humpback Whale catalog. Humpback whales are typically quite faithful to a particular oceanic feeding ground, and that is true in this case. Within the Gulf of Maine, though, pinball has been seen in many places, but most regular to northern Stellwagen Bay and Jeffreys. While pinball's rescue ended with success, researchers are worried about another entanglement story unfolding out in the waters north of Cape Cod. A still-nursing hump calf, estimated to be about seven months old, 
has high tensile monofilament fishing line wrapped around its left flipper. The young whale, who is believed to be the first offspring of a whale named Lollipop, was first spotted with the entanglement in June. The fishing line, said Landry, is cutting into the flipper all the way to the bone. Without help, the entanglement could result in the flipper being severed or in an infection, which could prove fatal. Humpbacks use their flippers to maneuver while swimming and feeding and for bed. There have been around 10 attempts so far to help the as-yet-unnamed calf. Landry said the entanglement is a technically very difficult entanglement to deal with since the young whale is constantly on the move and the flipper being underwater is difficult to access. But the researchers have no plans to give up. We're just going to keep trying and trying and trying, he said. The Marine Mammal Rescue Team at the International Fund of Animal Welfare is working with the province town center's team, Landry said, and is going to lead an attempt at sedating the calf so rescuers can get closer to the animal for long enough to remove the The good news is that the calf is still in pretty good health, at least since it was last sighted as the rescue team was returning from helping pinball over the weekend, Landry said. The calf and its mother remain together at the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which stretches for about 24 miles between Cape Cod and Cape Ann, spanning up to five miles on the northern side and about 14 miles on the southern side, and encompassing 842 square miles. The Center for Coastal Studies urges anyone who sees entangled whales, sea turtles, or other marine animals to report their sightings at 1-800-900-3622, or the U.S. Coast Guard on VHF-16, and to stand by the animal at a safe distance until trained responders arrive. All disentanglement efforts are conducted under a federal permit authorized by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And now in national news, Hawaii works to identify fire victims. 99 are confirmed dead as teams intensify by Claire Rush, Jennifer Cinco Kelleher, and Christopher Weber from the Associated Press. Hawaii officials worked painstakingly to identify the 99 people confirmed killed in wildfires that ravaged Maui and were expected to release the first names later Tuesday, even as teams intensified the search for more dead and neighborhoods reduced. A week after a blaze tore through historic Lahaina, many who survived have started moving into hundreds of hotel rooms set aside for displaced locals, while donations of food, ice, water, and other essentials have poured in. Crews using cadaver dogs have covered about 25% of the search area, the police chief said Monday. Governor Josh Green asked for patience and space to do the search properly as authorities have become overwhelmed with requests to visit the burn area. For those people who have walked into Lahaina because they really wanted to see, know that they're very likely walking on iwi, he said at a news conference on Maui, using the Hawaiian word for bones. Just three bodies had been identified Tuesday, according to Maui Police Chief John Pelletier, who renewed an appeal for families with missing relatives to provide DNA samples. Green warned that scores more bodies could be found. The wildfires, some of them not yet been fully contained, are already the deadliest in the United States in more than a century. Their cause was under investigation. Authorities paused a system that allowed Lahaina residents and others to visit devastated areas with police permits. Kevin Eliason said that when he was turned away, the line of cars with people waiting to get a placard had grown to at least three miles long. It's a joke, Eliason said. It's just crazy. They didn't expect probably tens of thousands of people to show up there. The blaze that swept into centuries-old Lahaina last week destroyed nearly every building in the town of 13,000. That fire has been 85% contained, according to the county. Another blaze known as the Upcountry Fire has been 65% contained. 
Even where the fire has retreated, authorities have warned that toxic byproducts may remain, including in drinking water, after the flames spewed poisonous fumes that has left many unable to return home. The Red Cross said 575 evacuees were spread across five shelters on Monday, including the War Memorial Gymnasium in Waikiku. Green said that thousands of people will need housing for at least 36 weeks. More than 3,000 people have registered for federal assistance, according to the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and that number was expected to grow. We're not taking anything off the table, and we're going to be very creative in how we use our authorities to help build communities and help people find a place to stay for the longer term, Agency Administrator Denise Criswell said. FEMA has started to provide $700 to displaced residents to help cover the cost of food, water, first aid, and medical supplies. The money is in addition to whatever amount residents qualify for to cover the loss of homes and personal The Biden administration is seeking $12 billion more for the government's disaster relief fund as part of its supplemental funding request to Congress. Green said leaders all across the board have helped by donating over a million pounds of food as well as ice, water, diapers, and baby formula. When people are hurting, the community steps up and takes care of each other, Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke said at a news conference Monday. A small number of active-duty U.S. Marines have also joined in the aid effort. Meanwhile, the local power utility has faced criticism for not shutting off power as strong winds buffeted a parched area under high risk for fire. It's not clear whether the utility's equipment played any role in igniting the flames. Hawaiian Electric Company Incorporated will cooperate with the state's investigation as well as conducting its own, President and CEO Shili Kimura said. Kimura said many factors go into a decision to cut power, including the impact on people who rely on specialized medical equipment. She also noted that shutting off power in the fire area would have knocked out water pumps. Even in places where this has been used, it is controversial and is not universally accepted, she said. Fueled by dry grass and propelled by strong winds from a passing hurricane, the flames on Maui raced as fast as a mile every minute in one area, according to As firefighters battled the flames last week, a flurry of court actions were lodged over access to water. Some state officials say there is not enough water available for firefighters in central Maui and blame a recent ruling by an environmental court judge. The ruling did not directly affect water supplies to Lahaina, the attorney general office said Monday. On Wednesday morning, Judge Jeffrey Crabtree issued an order temporarily suspending water caps he imposed for 48 hours. The judge also authorized water distribution as requested by Maui fire officials, the county or state, until further notice if he could not be reached. But that wasn't enough for the state attorney general's office, which filed a petition with the state Supreme Court blaming Crabtree for a lack of water for firefighting. The state asked the court not to let Crabtree alter the amount of water to be diverted or to put a hold on his restrictions until the petition is resolved. It's a part of a long-running battle between environmentalists and private companies over the practice of diverting water from streams that started Hawaii's sugar plantation pass. And from Atlanta, Trump and allies charged in election meddling by Kate Ruback and Eric Tucker of the Associated Press. Donald Trump and 18 allies were indicted in Georgia on Monday over their efforts to overturn his 2020 election loss in the state, with prosecutors using a statute normally associated with mobsters to accuse the former president, lawyers, and other aides of a criminal enterprise to keep him in power. 
The nearly 100-page indictment details dozens of acts by Trump or his allies to undo his defeat, including beseeching Georgia's Republican Secretary of State to find enough votes for him to win the battleground state, harassing an election worker who faced false claims of fraud, and attempting to persuade Georgia lawmakers to ignore the will of the voters and appoint a new slate of electoral college electors favorable to Trump. In one particularly brazen episode, it also outlines a plot involving one of his lawyers to access voting machines in a rural Georgia county and steal data from a voting machine company. The indictment alleges that rather than abide by Georgia's legal process for election challenges, the defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, whose office brought the case, said at a late-night news conference. Other defendants include former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Trump attorney and former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, and a Trump Administrative Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark, who advanced the then-president's efforts to undo his election loss in Georgia. Other lawyers who supported legally dubious ideas aimed at overturning the results include John Eastman, Sidney Powell, and Kenneth Chesbrough, who were also charged. Willis said the defendants would be permitted to voluntarily voluntarily surrender by noon August 25th. She also said she plans to seek a trial date within six months and that she intends to try the defendants collectively. An indictment bookends a remarkable crush of criminal cases, four and five months, each in a different city, that would be daunting for anyone, never mind someone like Trump, who is simultaneously balancing the roles of criminal defendant and presidential candidate. It comes just two weeks after the Justice Department special counsel charged him in a vast conspiracy to overturn the election, underscoring how prosecutors, after lengthy investigations that followed the January 6, 2021 riot at the Capitol, have now, two and a half years later, taken steps to hold Trump to account for an assault on the underpinnings of American democracy. The Georgia case covers some of the same ground as Trump's recent indictment in Washington, including attempts he and his allies made to disrupt the electoral vote count at the Capitol. But in its sprawling web of defendants, 19 in total, the indictment stands apart from the more tightly targeted case brought by special counsel Jack Smith, which so far only names Trump as a defendant. In charging close Trump aides, who were referenced by Smith only as unindicted co-conspirators, the Georgia indictment alleges a scale of criminal contact extending far beyond the ex-president. The charging document, in language conjuring up the seedy underworld of Bob Mosses and gang leaders, accuses the former president, his former chief of staff, his attorneys, and the ex-New York mayor of being members of a criminal organization and enterprise that operated in Georgia and other states. The indictment capped a chaotic day at the courthouse caused by the brief but mysterious on a county website of a list of criminal charges that were to be brought against the former president. Reuters, who published a copy of the document, said the filing was taken down quickly. Trump and his allies, who have characterized the investigation as politically motivated, immediately seized on the apparent error to claim that the process was rigged. Trump's campaign aimed to fundraise off its sending out an email with the since-deleted document in a statement after the indictment was issued, Trump's legal team said the events that have unfolded today have been shocking and absurd, starting with a leak of the presumed and premature indictment before the witnesses had testified or the grand jurors had deliberated, and ending with the district attorney being unable to offer an explanation. The lawyers said prosecutors presenting their case relied on witnesses who harbored their own personal and political interests, some of whom ran campaigns touting their efforts against the 
Many of the 161 acts by Trump and his associates outlined in the Georgia indictment have already received widespread attention. That includes a January 2, 2021 call in which Trump urged Georgia Secretary of State Brad Rassenberger to find the 11,780 votes needed to overturn his election loss. That call, prosecutors said, violated a Georgia law against soliciting a public official to violate the It also charges Trump with making false statements and writings for a series of claims he made to Raffensperger and other state election officials, including that up to 300,000 ballots were dropped mysteriously into the rolls in the 2020 election, that more than 4,500 people voted who weren't on registration lists, and that a Fulton County election worker, Ruby Freeman, was a professional vote scammer. Giuliani, meanwhile, is charged with making false statements. He is accused of lying to lawmakers by claiming that more than 96,000 mail-in ballots were counted in Georgia, despite there being no record of them having been returned to a county elections office, and that a voting machine in Michigan wrongly recorded 6,000 votes for Biden that were actually classed for In a statement, Giuliani did not respond directly to any of the allegations, but called the indictment an affront to American democracy and just the next chapter in a book of lies. Also charged are individuals who prosecutors say helped Trump and his allies on the ground in Georgia influence and intimidate election work. One man, Stephen Cliffgard Lee, is accused of traveling to Freeman's home with the intent to influence her testimony. Freeman and her daughter, Shai Moss, testified to Congress last year about how Trump and his allies latched onto surveillance footage from a November 2020 to accuse both women of committing voter fraud, allegations that were quickly debunked yet spread widely across conservative media. Both women who are black face death threats for several months after the election. The indictment also accuses Powell and several co-defendants of tampering with voting machines in Coffee County, Georgia, and stealing data belonging to Dominion Voting Systems, a producer of tabulation machines that has long been the focus of conspiracy th- According to evidence made public by the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th riot, Trump allies targeted Coffee County in search of evidence to back their theories of widespread voter fraud, allegedly copying data and software. Besides the two election-related cases, Trump faces a separate accusing him of illegally hoarding classified documents, as well as a New York State case charging him with falsifying business records. As indictments mount, Trump, the leading Republican candidate for president in 2024, often invokes his distinction as the only former president to face criminal charges. He's campaigning and fundraising around these themes, portraying himself as the victim of Democratic prosecutors out to get him. Republican allies once again quickly rallied to Trump's defense. Americans see through this desperate sham, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy wrote on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. And... And that concludes our reading of today's edition of the Cape Cod Times for Wednesday, August 16th, 2023. Have a great day and thank you for listening.